Well, thanks very much, Jeff, for leading worship today. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Can you give me a piece of tape um, real quick? John 18, verses 12 through 27. We've uh, fast-forwarded past the point where Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're picking up here in 12. And we read these words. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man had died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and he spoke to the girl on duty there and he brought Peter in. The girl at the door asked Peter, you're not one of, his, of this man's disciples, are you? He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and the officials stood around a charcoal fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus replied, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues or at temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus replied, if I said something wrong, testify to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man who whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of all the disciples of Jesus Christ, Peter was uh, clearly the most impetuous, the most prone to extremes. Uh, he was the one who, he, he seemed to either get it all right or all wrong. It was, after all, Peter who confessed that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It was Peter who stepped out of the boat and ended up walking on water. It was Peter who, just that evening in the upper room, steadfastly maintained that even if, even if all fall away on account of you, I, I never will. And of all the disciples, it was Peter who, given three opportunities to bear witness to Christ, failed. Three times. If you read in the Gospel of Mark, Mark's uh, narrative gives a few more details than John's does. So when this servant girl asked him, aren't you one of his disciples? You were with Jesus the Nazarene. Uh, weren't you? Peter, Peter says, he gives a double denial. He says, I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. I am not. 
Then he's accused the second time by some uh, nondescript bystander. The third time, though, you notice here, it's the servant of the high priest. And this is a pretty uh, serious uh, you know, accusation. Uh, I saw you in the garden. Weren't you in the garden? And in Mark's gospel, Peter, um, he begins to call curses down on his head, uh, such as like, may God deal with me ever so severely if I am one of those Galileans. I swear by God's name, I don't know the man. And that's when the rooster crows. And in uh, Luke's gospel, it says so memorably that he, he went out and he wept bitterly. Kevin DeYoung, one of my favorite uh, authors, he put it well. He says, oh, poor Peter, he's so unlike us. True, we're not perfect, but we'd certainly not deny Jesus three times. Well, we're more steady than that, more mature, more faithful. Uh, now, granted, our prayer life is an undisciplined mess. Uh, we've not really followed through with any of the spiritual goals we set out to accomplish this year. We had all these lofty ambitions during our time in quarantine, but in truth, it's only meant more yelling, more drink, and more Netflix. You know, one week we're ready to lay down our lives for Jesus, and the next week we are decidedly bored. Ah, but you say, we wouldn't have lied to a servant girl, a servant girl. It was a harmless question from a harmless person. If she had asked us, are you a disciple of Jesus? We're not afraid of being identified with Jesus, right? But then you think to yourself, I wonder how many people at the office really know that I'm a Christian. Or I can't... I can't recall telling anybody in my dorm how much Jesus means to me. And I suppose that when I do talk to my neighbors, I kind of talk about everything except Jesus. And even if I muster up some courage to talk about spiritual things, it's, it's largely in vague spiritual general, generalities. I, I don't mention the name of Jesus. In fact, I'm not sure when was the last time outside of a gathering with Christians that I have told people about Jesus. Ah, but you say, even though we don't verbalize our faith like Peter, and maybe it's hard for us to unequivocally say under pressure that I am his disciple, look, some of us are just not quick on our feet. We're, we're introverts, after all. Uh, we're not good with words. We freeze up. Uh, we can't answer the hard questions when we're put on the spot. But even if we can't muster up the courage to talk about Jesus under pressure, uh, it's definitely there in our hearts, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, Jesus is in my heart. But didn't Jesus also say that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? Maybe we're really like Peter after all. Here's an interesting fact that I learned this week. I had no idea about this, but, you know, they started putting weather vanes on the top of uh, church steeples, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it, because that was the highest point in the, in the town, right? In, at the top of the church steeple, you could sort of see where the breeze was coming from. Well, do you know that what was there on the top of um, many churches before there were weather vanes? There were, get this, roosters. <laughs> 
they'd put a rooster on top of the church. And eventually the rooster and the weather vane, you know, became connected with one another. We've all seen, you know, rooster weather vanes before, but the rooster was there first. And in fact, there are still some old church buildings where you can find a rooster on the top of the steeple. If you look it up online, you'll find these, uh, Rather funny conversations between people along the lines of, well, why in the world does this church in my neighborhood have a rooster on it? How ridiculous. Well, originally it goes back to the story with Peter. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Christians would put a rooster on the church to symbolize and to remind us that we must be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. You know, Christians could stand in the town square and look up to the highest point in the city and there would be, of all things, a rooster staring back at them with a message. Be true to Christ. Bear witness to Christ. Have the courage to bear witness to Christ in the world. And it can be quite difficult, uh, especially when you start down uh, what we'll call a slippery slope. Uh, Peter, in my estimation, ends up tumbling down a sl- slippery slope here. If you look at verse 17 with me, notice the way that the question the servant girl asks is phrased in verse 17. She asks him, you're not one of his disciples, are you? The way in which the question is asked indicates the expected answer to that question is no. The way that it's phrased gives Peter an, an easy way out. It's basically, nah, nah, I I don't even know what you're talking about. And at that very moment, he he probably thinks I'm in the clear. Okay, that I did it. I violated my conscience, but it's done. I can move on. And sure, he's in the clear until what? Until the second question comes. And since he's already violated his conscience and told a lie in the first instance, what option does he have but to lie in the second? That's how it is when it comes to violating our consciences. Like once is never enough. You probably read the C.S. Lewis quote on the front of your bulletin. It's such an insightful uh, perspective. He says, like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. And once, once the, the, the first easy lie the, the first one's the easiest lie. Once that has been told, once the conscience has been violated, once is never enough. And Peter is uh, drawn into a web of deceit from which it's very difficult to escape. If you remember a couple of years ago, I preached through the book of Daniel and we saw, a, a, we, we looked a lot about the, at the Christian conscience. And I said then, and I'll say again to you, Our conscience is the most important expression of our loyalty to God. Like if you were to dissect your humanity, the the part and parcel, the piece of your humanity where your your loyalty to God resides is, is there. And therefore, that is why we must protect our consciences at all costs. Because that's where my loyalty to the king Uh, must be maintained. And if I let, we saw this in Daniel, if you let Babylon get into your conscience, if you let Babylon inside you, her system of values, her definition of words, her decadent foods, it will poison your conscience. It will murder your conscience. Um, It's in our conscience that we already do the battle. It's in our conscience where we say, I would rather starve than be disloyal to my king. 
Nothing is more important to me than, than King Jesus. And so I think the rooster is, is a, is a two-pronged call to be, be courageous to bear witness to Jesus in the world and to never uh, darken our own consciences. Vincent van Gogh, the great Dutch artist, was well known for his use of color theory before probably color theory was actually invented. Um, he once said in a letter to one of his sisters, quote, there are colors that make each other shine. Interesting uh, quote. And he, he painted what is, is now known as a simultaneous, he, uh, he painted in what, what is now known as simultaneous contrast. When one color actually changes the way that we perceive another color, especially when those two colors are juxtaposed together um, side by side. And I think the way that John writes this narrative, he, he's, he's doing something similar. He wants us to see the, the deliberate contrast between Jesus and Peter. That's why the story is uniquely told this way in the Gospel of John. None of the other Gospel writers do this interplay of, you know, Peter cut to Jesus, cut back to Peter. The, the two trials are interwoven, uh, and he wants us to see the contrast that Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Jesus is faced with real danger, with torture and death, and he remains truthful and steadfast to the end. Peter is facing a servant girl who is who is not really dangerous, someone far below him in the social class structure of his day. And he surrenders, he surrenders his integrity. He surrenders, he surrenders everything. One man faces temptations bravely and the other man succumbs to cowardice. Isn't Jesus awesome? <laughs> That's what the contrast is supposed to say. That he was tempted in every way that we are, yet... He did not sin, and yet he never used his divinity as a way to weasel out of the temptation. Do you realize, and I think you do, that he used the same resources in this moment of trial, that are the same resources that are available to us, the word of God to fortify his conscience, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. And that's... That's what he used. He's, he suffered the same temptations we suffer and much worse. And he never succumbed to cowardice because he used the word of God and prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit to get him through. Hallelujah, what a savior. And what a message for us, isn't it? Well, changing gears, I want to fast forward to a later episode, two later episodes in Peter's life. Uh, the first being... We talked about it two Sundays ago on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up. Uh, he's a changed man, full of the Holy Spirit. He stands up in a crowd of Jews, and he boldly preaches and confesses Jesus Christ before him. Um, he's, yeah, as I said, a totally different man, um, full of courage after the Holy Spirit has descended upon him on the day of Pentecost. He ends up writing two books of the Bible, and we think, oh, well, I mean, now that he has the Spirit... He's, he's kind of good to go. But there's, a, there's another episode in one of Paul's letters, the epistle to the Galatians, where we discover that that's not actually the case. Um, Paul says in chapter 2 of Galatians that at one point he had to, and this is after Pentecost, he had to publicly rebuke Peter. And you say, well, why would one apostle you know, publicly rebuke another apostle? Apparently it was because Peter refused to eat with Gentile Christians because 
because he was afraid of offending to his stricter Jewish Christian friends by doing so. And Paul says in Galatians 2, I rebuked him to his face. I called him out in front of everybody because he was not living in line with the gospel, because he was afraid of what other people would think of him if he ate with another race. Now, the reason I mention that, isn't it interesting? It, it looks as though Peter is kind of falling into the same trap again. He's bowing down to, we could call it the idol of approval. He's afraid of other people. He's afraid of telling somebody else something they don't want to hear. He's afraid of, of not measuring up. And I just find it so interesting that years and years after this infamous betrayal, Peter is like you and me, still struggling with the same sins that he had in days past. And here's something, everyone, if you're new to Christianity, you, you do need to know this about Christianity. Uh, the character struggles that you have in your, your pre-Christian life, they don't evaporate <laughs> once you head into uh, your new Christian life. It's, it's not as though the character struggles that you had before dissolve like a, a tablet in a, in a glass of water. Um, that's why we call them besetting sins. They're sins that just keep popping up. And so it is, You're always, you will always be living in this spiritual paradox that you are a new creation in Christ. You are brand spanking, new and full of the Holy Spirit, and you're also still found in the same sinful packaging as before, you know, with, uh, you know, with all of the baggage uh, associated with that. And the essence of this was captured in a Latin phrase by uh, Martin Luther. He said, we are a simul justus et, uh, et peccator. Simul is uh, the, the Latin prefix or, for um, simultaneous. Justus uh, is just or righteous. Et is and. And uh, peccator is sin. So simul justus et peccator means at the same time you are just and you are a sinner. Uh, it means at this very moment we are both righteous. Uh, we, we are and we are capable of acting with surprising courage, integrity, dignity, tenderness, humility, holiness, conviction, and love. And we are totally peccator. We are also capable of being, of just being sheer coward, uh, living in the fear of man, um, suffering repeated spiritual failures. It's true. Rico Tice, another one of my favorites, uh, he, he was addressing his congregation. He says, I'm speaking to you. If you're a man or a woman who sets out in the Christian life with uh, high personal ideals and a serious desire to live for Christ, and yet you discover at a critical moment in your life that you lack the inner resources to live up to those ideals, and you fail, and you're ashamed, I'm speaking to you. I'm talking about the girl from a Christian youth group who moved to London after college and finds herself sleeping with her boyfriend or having a, an extramarital affair with a married man and she feels ashamed. And I'm speaking to you. Uh, I'm talking about the, the boy from a Christian home who finds himself later enslaved to drink and pornography and he feels ashamed. And I'm speaking to you. And I'm talking about the man or the woman who in their youth made a sincere commitment to Jesus Christ, but who under the pressure of career or ambition or time, find themselves a traitor to his cause and feel ashamed. You hear a theme here? Like Peter 
felt ashamed and, and we feel ashamed. And God is speaking to you. If we fast forward once again, and, and I'll conclude the sermon here. If you go to John chapter 21, and either I or somebody else are, is going to preach it in a couple of weeks, we find really good news. Um, the hippocampus is the part of the human brain where memories are stored. And if you're anything like me, part of the time, it seems like much of the hippocampus is, uh, is closed off to you. <laughs> I'm terrible when it comes to, to memories. But uh, something that scientists uh, and uh, neuroscientists have discovered is that you can like unlock the hippocampus through uh, different sensory a- activities. Like music will sometimes unlock a memory, or especially smell. Your sense of smell will unlock a memory. You'll be walking down the street thinking of something completely different, and then a single sniff of someone's pipe tobacco or a single whiff of a particular tree in a garden can take you back 20 years or more to a memory you you didn't even remember that you had. And you can recall the place and the people and what was said and what particularly that felt like. Well, that's what happens to Peter in chapter 21. There's only one place that I know of in all of the Bible where you get a charcoal fire (laughs) twice. You get a charcoal fire here in John 18 as they're warming themselves in the courtyard and then you get a charcoal fire on a beach after Jesus has been resurrected. You know, most of the grills that we use outdoors uh, are gas grills. And so I doubt I mean, many of our kids have not even ever smelled a Kings, Kingsford uh, charcoal and, you know, that type of grill. But if you've ever smelled it before, a charcoal fire is very distinctive. Um, and you may even do so on Memorial Day or uh, Ju- July 4th. And you remember what you were doing, what was said the last time you came upon one. Well, Jesus, I mean, sorry, Peter dives out of his fishing boat, swims to shore, and finds Jesus Christ standing there cooking breakfast over a charcoal fire. And surely the reason he did it that way is is the smell. The smell would have brought back the memory of the betrayal. Uh, The smell would have actually hurt him deeply. It would have like opened up the wound that he had felt and you know, he was opening up the wound to heal it. Because on, bre- on the beach, Jesus uh, made him breakfast and he gave him three opportunities to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Three opportunities to just experience the power of grace. Yeah. He opens the wound. And so here it is, friend. Uh, if you feel like a spiritual failure, Jesus is for you. If you feel like just a grand, abysmal failure, that's not the end of the story. Jesus is for you. If you're frustrated in all the ways that you're simul justus et peccator, remember this, that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he did not give a speech to the rest of the world. He went and he cooked breakfast for his friends. Amen? And... And so I want you to remember both in the coming week. I want you to remember the rooster and I want you to remember the fire because uh, they are, uh, they must be intertwined. Amen.